This morning will be in John 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater, greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I had the honor this past week of uh, speaking at the weekly campus outreach meeting and enjoyed it tremendously. I shared a story of my senior year in college when I was on a ski trip uh, with my classmates. It was the senior class trip to Seven Springs Ski Resort just outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, it was the first time that this Florida boy skied. And it was night skiing, so the lights were on. And uh, I made the mistake of not reading signs at one point in the night. And so I passed a, a sign that said, slope is closed. I was by myself and uh, said, I have the whole, whole slope to myself, I guess. So down, down it I went on a black diamond with moguls. And um, you know, it was a yard sale about halfway down the slope. And then, uh, and then the, the unthinkable happened. The lights shut off. So I proceeded to gather my skis and walk down the rest of this black diamond with moguls, slide down, whatever you call it. I get to the bottom and the ski lift was shut off. The entire side of the mountain was shut down. And, uh, and, and even telling you, I, there's this, I'm feeling this bubble back up in my heart what I felt. Because I'm at the bottom of this mountain, looking up and seeing the light on the other side, you know, just kind of the silhouette, thinking how in the world Am I going to get back over there to get on that bus and go back to Pittsburgh, to Carnegie Mellon, where my dorm is? <laughs> Walked a long way. Long story short, I'm still here today, so I, I made it. But what I want to, what I, that moment of feeling uh, utter abandonment, loneliness, darkness, confusion, fear, not knowing how I was going to make it back to where I needed to be. I haven't had that experience again, thankfully, but I've had that feeling since, and every one of us have in moments of life, in seasons of life where trouble hits. And there's times of deep darkness. There's times of disillusionment. There's times of confusion. There's times of, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know quite what to do. 
And if you felt that, you've felt a very similar thing that the disciples were feeling at this point, at the end of John chapter 13, because Jesus opens now his words in John 14 with what? Let not your hearts be troubled. These disciples were troubled. Why? Because one of their friends, Peter, was about to lose his faith that they just became aware of. They were about to lose Jesus. They were disillusioned. They were confused. And so Jesus gives them words for a troubled heart and answers the question, what is the hope for a troubled heart? First, we're going to see it's the Father's presence through the Son. The Father's presence through the Son. Look at verses 2 to 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean we all get a mansion in heaven? Does it mean we finally get the dream home, all decked out with the amenities that we had hoped for in this life? No, doesn't mean that. There are two phrases in these verses that unpack what it means. The first phrase is, my father's house. This is only the second time in John that this phrase appears. The first time was in John chapter two, when Jesus clears the temple. And after clearing the temple, he says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, Jesus is saying that the temple is the father's house. And the temple was the place where God's presence dwelled. That was the place where God met with his people in the temple. The story of the Bible is a story of the temple. The first temple was the Garden of Eden, where God had perfect communion with the people he had created, Adam and Eve. Then you have the tabernacle and the temple in the life of Israel, which was where God met with his people through blood sacrifice. Then you have the temple of Jesus' body in the new covenant, where God is reconciled to his people through Jesus' body. And then you have in Revelation, the final temple, which is the new heavens and the new earth, when God will dwell perfectly with his people, with sin, death, darkness, trouble destroyed. The story of the Bible, the story of the world is a story of a temple. And here Jesus speaks of his father's house as a temple, God's dwelling place. He's speaking of his presence, the father's presence, that that is the hope for a troubled heart. And then there's a second phrase in these verses that reinforces it. You know, Jesus says, I'll go prepare a place for you, and then I'm gonna come get you. But why? What is the purpose of all of Jesus' work of preparation? Look at the end of verse three. That where I am, you may also be. All Jesus' work of preparation is driving to this point of intimate communion with the Father, the Father's presence, relationship, oneness. The Father's presence is the cure for a troubled heart. You know, as human beings, we seek comfort in the presence of something, don't we? That is how we operate as human beings. We seek comfort in the presence of something. You can seek comfort in the presence of food. 
You can seek comfort in the presence of alcohol. Uh, you can seek uh, comfort in the presence of, uh, of a person, a relationship. You can seek comfort in the presence of a smartphone. You can seek comfort in the presence of a TV. You can seek comfort in the presence of a performance review at work. We seek comfort in the presence of something. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, when his disciples find themselves troubled at heart, that his first response to them in the midst of trouble is the Father's presence. That intimate communion with the Father, that that's the hope for a troubled heart. Now, how do we... How do we get there? How do you get to the Father's presence? This is the question that Thomas asks, doesn't he? Right, verse five. Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? You know what Thomas is saying. This is great, but how do we get to the Father's house? How do we get to the Father's presence? And then Jesus replies in verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, I will give you directions for the way. And I will speak truth to you along the way so you can navigate it. And I will give you the ingredients for life so that you can have it. As if Jesus walks the road takes good notes and good directions and then gives it to us to follow to one day arrive there. That's not what Jesus says. The back half of verse six is the key when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, every, every world religion, major world religion operates this way, outside of Christianity. Here are the directions on how to get there. Here's the way. If you'll just follow this prescription, you'll get there. That's what every major world religion is based on. Here is how you get to the Father's house. Here's how you get to the presence of God. Here's what you have to do. And Jesus makes it really clear here with the back half of verse six that no, no. When he says, I am the way, and I am the truth, I am the life, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, your, your way to God is not following my way. Your way to God is following me. Let me give you an example of this. I, my, my mother was on her way to Jacksonville about a year ago with her friend, and they were gonna pass through and go to Fort Pierce to visit family. And she decided that she was gonna stop and stay in a hotel with her friend overnight because she wanted to see us. She wanted to see the grandkids. And so the night we were supposed to meet, she was staying at a hotel on Butler and 95. We were going to meet at a restaurant right there. And she was so excited to see the kids and her son, sort of, but the kids, right? I get a call at the time we're supposed to be meeting at the restaurant. And Kim and I and the kids are sitting there and she says, Keith, I, I think I'm a little lost. I'm on this road. It's called uh, uh, Beach, Beach Boulevard. Turns out, and you maybe know this, but just south of downtown, the new Beach Boulevard flyover, there's no signage. It's awful. And so she just, she thought she was on 95 until she hit a few traffic lights on Beach Boulevard and realized, I'm not on I-95 anymore. 
So I said, hey, no problem, mom. Here are the directions to get back to 95. Hang up. Four minutes later, I get a call. Five minutes later, maybe. Uh, hey, Keith, so I'm at this store on this road. It's, I think it's called Phillips Highway. And uh, mom, you, you're, you're closer to downtown. You're going the wrong way. Here's how you get back to 95. We had five or six phone calls like that. In every phone call, she had gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into her lostness away from 95 and Butler where the hotel was. Finally, hour and a half later, after we had enjoyed dinner at this restaurant, an hour and a half later, we meet her in the parking lot at the hotel. You know what would have been a much better solution? Is that first time she called on Beach Boulevard, stopped. If I would have said, Mom, stay put. Stay put. I'm coming to get you. And I would have driven over there, and I would have gotten her and her friend, put her in my car, and gone back to the restaurant, and it would have been solved. Listen, that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ coming to get you. Because if we operate on this, every other major world religion track that says, just follow the example. Just do what he told you to do and you'll get there. You'll never make the right turn. All you'll make are wrong turns because that is what sin is called. That's what sin does in the heart. You know, the directions to the father, it's, it's the law of God. It's how we're designed to live. The problem is we can't follow it. And so Jesus, what did he do? When he says, I'm the way, what's that mean? That means he followed the law of God to perfection. He followed the directions to a T. On the truth, on the life, it means that he went to the cross to fulfill the law, the negative penalties for it, all for us. So that when he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, he's not saying, now just go do what I did. No. He's saying, you come to the Father through me. You believe in me. I come get you. And then I give you the Holy Spirit. And yes, then you have a chance to do what I've asked you to do. Follow the law of God. But Jesus comes and gets you. What a sweet promise this is. You know, there are moments in life where you get to a place like the disciples where you are troubled. Where you don't know the way out. You've taken a lot of wrong turns. A lot of wrong turns that have brought you down a deeper and deeper and darker alley until you finally get to the point and say, I can't make the right turn. I can't make the correct turn. And you hear the promise of the gospel, John 14, 6. You come to the Father's house through me, Jesus says. You believe Jesus. He comes and gets you. He comes and rescues you. And boy, when you're in the midst of trouble and darkness, and disillusionment, and frustration, and anxiety, and everything is going the wrong way, boy, what a sweet promise that is, that Jesus doesn't wait for you to get out of your hole. He comes and gets you. He rescues you. What's the hope for a troubled heart? It's the Father's presence through the Son. Second, it's the Father's heart through the Son. It's the Father's heart you know, typically, we, 
when trouble and chaos hits, and we see this in our world with the number of world religions there are, the amount of spirituality there is, is that when trouble and chaos hits, there is something ingrained in us. It's called the image of God that has us own up to and realize something is wrong with this world, something's wrong with my life, and there's a hope that there's something or someone outside of this world to fix it, i.e. a God, someone of a higher power. And so that's what has birthed all the religions that there are in the world, is man's attempt in the lostness and the trouble of this world to say, some God has to rescue us. Now, what that generally produces is a generic abstract God that usually is not very knowable. It's just a God that somehow is gonna fix things. And then we, we, once we create that God, usually in our own image, then we try to figure out how to fit Jesus in. So we create a God that's gonna somehow rescue us, make us feel better and comfortable and, and ease the pain and the trouble. And then we say, now how does Jesus fit into that? That's exactly what the disciples do here. Right? Look what Philip says. Philip says in verse eight, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Hey, Jesus, just show us God. Give us a vision of God. And that's all we need in the midst of our troubled hearts right now. And Jesus says basically to Philip, uh, you've got it reversed. See, you're asking for a picture or a vision of God and trying to figure out how I fit in. You've got it reversed, Philip. Verse nine, whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus says to Philip, you're going the wrong way. You're starting with God and then trying to fit me in. You know how you want to, you know how you see God? It's me. Think about in the scriptures. I mean, how many times humanity in the scriptures is looking for a vision of God? Old Testament, you got Moses who says, uh, to God, show me your glory. What does God do? You, you don't want to see my, you can't see my glory and live, Moses. So what's he do? He shows them the backside of his glory, the trailing edge of his glory. And yet here we have Jesus saying, you want a vision of God? Here it is. Full revelation of God's power, of God's love, of God's majesty, of God's justice in the person of Jesus. And that means that the, the same Jesus that minutes before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane is shedding Blood, tears of blood because he's, he's sweating blood because he's in so much anguish minutes before he's in, uh, arrested. Minutes after he's arrested, he walks forward and says, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And do you know what the gospels record when he says that? Minutes before he's in anguish, sweating blood, he says, I am he. And the soldiers draw back and fall to the ground. It was like a blast of glory. As Jesus said, I am God, I am he. That's the same Jesus. The same Jesus that, that is weeping at the death of Lazarus and weeping at the unbelief of the Jews that are weeping over Lazarus is the same Jesus that in the temple clears it in righteous anger. You can't box Jesus in. And the reason you can't is because he is the revelation of who God the Father is. He reveals who God is, God's love, God's mercy, God's justice, God's glory, all of it. And he's standing before his disciples who are saying, show us God and we'll fit, see how to fit you in. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. 
You look at me and you'll see the Father in his full, full glory. Bottom line, God is knowable. Now that's, that is a, that, that's an offensive statement in our world and our culture because there's so much in our world that believes there's a God, but he's not really knowable. And what we see here, what Jesus is telling his disciples is, no, God is knowable. He has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse seven, what is he known as? If you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What is God known as? Look at what Jesus reveals here. The disciples are under substantial emotional pressure. They're about to crack. They're on the, the, the cusp of catastrophic failure. Peter's about to lose his faith. Jesus is about to be gone. They're on the edge of falling apart. And what's striking is that in the midst of that, what does Jesus emphasize about God? It's his fatherhood. He reveals God as father. And that word father is repeated over and over in this passage. You know, Michael, uh, Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, he talks about two ways to know God, two possible ways to, to know God, and he compares them. He says the most common view of God is God as ruler of the universe. And that's correct. God as ruler in the universe. But listen to what he says. If God is the ruler, and the problem is that I have broken the rules, the only salvation he can offer is to forgive me and treat me as if I had kept the rules. He goes on to describe this and compare it to um, when you see God only as ruler of the universe, that it's almost like relating to God as a traffic cop. I'll give you an example. My wife and I uh, both got tickets within an hour of each other a couple months ago, speeding tickets, coming out of our neighborhood. And uh, when I got stopped by this um, very polite gentleman, police officer, uh, he said, you're going 33 in a 25. And he was right. I was. And he said, and therefore I'm going to write you a ticket. He was right. He should have. Wrote me a ticket, $120 or so, and then if you don't want points, go to traffic school. We model transparency in this church, but it probably wouldn't be appropriate for me to be transparent about what I felt at that moment <laughs> towards this police officer who did the right thing. Now, let me, let me rewind the tape. Had he come up to me and said, you were going 33 and a 25, you were speeding. I should write you a ticket. And if you want points off your license, you'll have to go to traffic school. But you know what? I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm going to let you off the hook and give you a warning. Now, if that had happened, I would have had gratitude for that police officer. I would have driven away with gratitude, but I wouldn't have loved him. I would have been grateful 
but I wouldn't have loved him. And Reeves makes the point, he says, if, if God is just the divine police officer, right, the, just the, the ruler of the universe, and he lets you off the hook for, for breaking the rules and then counts you as a law-abiding citizen, there's gratitude. But there's not love. That God reveals himself as Father. Jesus here reveals his father as father, which father relationship there is based on love. And he goes on to say, if, if God is not father, then how are we gonna fulfill the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart? See, the fatherhood of God is, is the key to loving God because the fatherhood of God says there's two ways of the love. He loves us, we love him. He's a, he's a father, he's tender, and he's compassionate with his children. And so, yes, we're grateful for our salvation, but we also love him as a caring and compassionate father, that that's what Jesus or what God is known as, and that's how Jesus reveals him here to his disciples who have a troubled heart, as a father who loves. So what is the hope for a troubled heart? The father's presence through the son, the father's heart through the son, known, he's knowable as father, and then third, the Father's mission through the Son. This is striking counsel towards the end of this passage that Jesus gives these disciples. Let me just remind you where they're at. They are troubled in heart. They're under substantial emotional pressure. They're, they're ready to crack. Peter's about to lose his faith. Jesus is about to go. They're about to fall apart you would think that the appropriate counsel for his disciples at this point would be something like this. Guys, you are under great pressure. You're about to fall apart. Listen, let's just pull back. Let's just pull back. Let's take a break till you gather yourselves. That's not what Jesus tells them. What's he tell them in verse 12? He says, there's a great mission that I'm, gonna, I'm putting you on. And I think Jesus is communicating something here very, very important about the hope for a troubled heart. The hope for a troubled heart is not hunker down, pull away from everything, enter into self-preservation mode and protection mode, just cut everything off. No, Jesus gives just the opposite, that the hope for a troubled heart is get on mission. Get your eyes on him. In fact, John 16, 33 says this. A couple chapters later, in the world you will have tribulation. You know what Jesus is saying there? Guys, to his disciples, expect this troubled heart. In this world, you're gonna have trouble. You're gonna have tribulation. That's just the expectation. And then he says what? Take heart, be courageous, I have overcome the world. In other words, he's getting their eyes on the mission, right, on the mission. Verse 12, look at it. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, what does this mean? Greater works than these. What does that mean? Does it mean that we're gonna, raise not just one person from the dead, as Jesus did with Lazarus, but that we're gonna raise two or three? Uh, does it mean that we're gonna feed miraculously 10,000 people and not just 5,000 like Jesus did? No, 
No, no. The contrast here and the key phrase that defines what's going on in verse 12 is because I am going to the Father. The contrast here is not between Jesus' works and his disciples' works. The contrast is between Jesus' works in the days of his flesh on the earth and Jesus' works through his disciples after his death and resurrection and ascension. That's what he's talking about. The greater works is, is hinging around the resurrection. That when Jesus rose from the dead, when he burst out of that tomb, something definitive happened in this world. That the kingdom of God, when Jesus burst out of this tomb, came in power in a way it hadn't before. The gospel exploded into our world. And so what we see here is that we're on this side of the resurrection. The greater works that Jesus was talking about post-resurrection and ascension, we live in right now, which means that the kingdom of God is invading the nations with transforming power and saving power. That the gospel is coming in power to change hearts. That that little tiny covenantal community called Israel has now exploded and grown and multiplied to cover the earth which is why we send someone like Lindsay and why she feels compelled to be sent to the Jordan, that the gospel's coming in power. That's the greater works, continues today. And so when trouble hits, Jesus says, no, don't pull back. Don't hunker down. Don't go into protection mode. When trouble hits, he says, get your eyes on me and my mission. I have a, a mentor and he would say over and over to me, that in the wake of suffering, hardship, and trouble, healing comes by getting back in the saddle and serving Jesus. And it's so contrary to how we, we tend to operate that when suffering and hardship and trouble hits, we want to hunker down. And Jesus says, no, that you will find healing when you get on mission with me and get your eyes on me and you're serving me. That's when healing comes. That's how healing comes, to a troubled heart. It's just about this point, verse 12, of, of Jesus' message to his disciples that we start to run the risk of promoting this prideful independence that we've been speaking about recently. The I can do this mentality. I mean, Jesus speaks this, greater works are you gonna do, right? It almost starts leaning towards, I can do this. And Peter, yes, greater works, we're gonna do it. But then Jesus, very quickly in verses 13 and 14, brings his disciples and us back to dependence expressed through prayer. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We say, great, brand new car, all the fixings, maybe a V6, anything, I can ask anything and I'll get it. No, the greater ask here is tied to the greater mission. The greater ask in 13 and 14 is tied to the mission, the greater works in verse 12, which is all about the gospel penetrating the nations in this world with healing, saving, and transforming power. Jesus defines prayer here, and he takes it much deeper into what we would call kingdom-centered prayer, 
glory of God-centered prayer, right? That the, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And the question is, are our prayers kingdom-centered prayers? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come in power in my neighborhood. Your kingdom come in power at my workplace. Your kingdom come in power at my school, my university, to change things. That's the prayers that Jesus is talking about here. He says, ask in my name for my kingdom to come and for greater works of power to be unleashed in this world that desperately needs transformation. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus is speaking of here. I believe that God is doing something unique right now in the life of Christ Church East. And I don't say that to say that he hasn't worked in years prior. Of course he has. But he's doing something unique here around this, around this dependence that's expressed through prayer. There's a season that he is calling us to and he's giving evidence to of this need to be dependent. I spoke about it last week, how quickly Beautiful, competent, successful people can be independent and not need the Lord. God's doing something. Ushering in a new season of dependence here at Christ Church East. Evidenced by prayer. And I'll say it starts with the elders. And I'll tell you that in early January, your elders who love you and lead you so well, they were praying. Praying. Pleading with the Lord for this church, for provision for this church, for provision for the mission that God has called us on, which is to bring the gospel to this city through a church plant at the beach here soon and through Christ Church East replenishing and reestablishing its footprint on the south side. It's an aggressive mission and the elders were pleading with the Lord in prayer, confessing independence and wanting to be a dependent group of men to lead this church. And I just want to give you, I, I want to give you a picture of hope, of, of, of one, the season we're in, and of how God is moving. And, and if you haven't looked, just look on the back of the, the order of worship. And I just want you to take a look at the financial box there on the back of the order of worship and look at the bottom. And I want you to see the provision that the Lord provided in the month of January, above and beyond, to his glory. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because as the Lord starts and is ushering in and birthing a new season of dependence in this congregation, we're gonna launch a new season of celebration when he does provide, when he does move, when he does save, when he does transform, when he does move somebody across the, the world to bring the gospel, we're gonna celebrate because God is working and he's at work and I believe God is calling us to a, a season of dependent prayer in every possible way from provision to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, that the gospel would do what it promises to do, to bring change. The greater works that Jesus promised to his disciples and those greater works that started the minute he burst out of that tomb 
and ascended to be with the Father. And nearly 2,000 years later, we are in that same season of greater works. That we would be a congregation that expects greater works to happen, not because we are independently successful, competent people, but because God's at work through dependent people that are expressing needs through prayer so that when they come and we celebrate it, we're not celebrating ourselves. We're celebrating him and his work to his glory. Because all of this is a part of the greater works that Jesus is doing. And I would just speak now to a people, every one of us here is experiencing trouble of heart to some degree. Whether you're in a great season or you're in a low season, there is always trouble. Jesus said it, John 16, You will always have tribulation. Here's what we do. In the middle of trouble, we say, if I can just, I hope I'm speaking your language. In the middle of trouble, if we can just get over this hump, everything will be okay. You ever speak that way? If we can just get past this season, right? We'll be okay. And then what happens when you get over the hump? Something else comes. Why? Because Jesus is true to his word. You'll always have tribulation. You'll always have trouble. And so the gospel hope is not just get me over the hump to the next season of comfort and ease. There's no such thing for a follower of Christ. Jesus says, expect trouble. Get your eyes on me and the greater works that I'm doing. And you will find that when you have the presence of the Father through the Son, you have the Father's heart as a, as a Father known through the Son, and as you get your eyes on Jesus and his mission, that's the hope for a troubled heart because God's at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are knowable, that you've revealed yourself in Jesus, that we don't have to fill in the blank trying to figure out who you are, that you came in the flesh, that you walked amongst us to show us who you are as Father. And thank you, Jesus, that you call us on mission and that the hope for a troubled heart is not ease and comfort, but that the hope for a troubled heart is the greater works that, God, you are doing in this world, in our hearts, in our lives, in our families. And that our expectation would not be to get over the hump to a place of ease, but that our expectation would be to see the greater works that you're doing. As we express our dependence on you through prayer, oh, Father, would you make us a praying people? Jesus, as you called your disciples here to prayer, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Would you make us a people that are praying kingdom-centered prayers, glory of God prayers, to see the greater works that you are doing in our lives in this world. Through your son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, thank you that you are a tender, compassionate Father that understands that we need something to taste and to touch, to be reminded of your presence, of your compassionate heart, and of your mission. And so we thank you for the Lord's Supper that we partake now. And as we hold on to the bread and touch it, and as we hold on to the cup and we drink it and we taste it going down, may the realness of the taste and the realness of the bread 
speak to the realness of your salvation and the realness of the greater works that you're doing right now in our midst. And may we be a people that respond to your, your Lord's Supper, to your meal, with gratitude, humility, and dependence, looking forward to the one day that you will come again, Jesus, and we will feast with you the marriage supper of the Lamb and be in your presence forever. Father, you gave us this meal not just as a remembrance, but as a means for your spirit to work in powerful ways. And we pray this morning that as we take this meal, that by your spirit, you would work in powerful ways in the hearts of those gathered. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.